All right, well, if you have your Bible this morning, let's go to Romans chapter 11. Romans 11 will be this morning. If you do not have a Bible this morning, maybe you forgot one, uh, or you don't actually own a Bible, you could just actually right now raise your hand, and we got a couple guys in the back that will help pass those out. You can just raise your hand in the air. It's okay. We won't look um, if you forgot it. If you don't have one, we'd love to give you a copy. So you can get one, and if this is your first Bible you've ever had, you can keep this. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Uh, so again, let signal down, Ben, if you need a Bible this morning. Romans chapter 11 is where we are going to be. This is about the 16th or 15th time we've looked at this letter from Paul to the church at Rome. And today we should finish what many people call the first part of this book, which is Romans chapters 1 through 11. We'll finish chapter 11, Lord willing, today. Now you're, uh, you're with us. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know we're in the bit of a, an, a series, an argument here. These three chapters, Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11 are dealing with an issue. And the issue has to do with, with Jesus. See, Jesus came as the Messiah that the people of Israel were waiting for. And Jesus lived a perfect life and died so that those who trusted him could be forgiven of their sin. But there's a problem that people had, which is this. If Jesus was the Messiah of the nation of Israel, then why are so few Israelites following him? Why do they claim to still be Jews? Why do Jewish people today still say that they're waiting for the Messiah? And what it looks like is God made all these promises to Israel, and it looks like they didn't happen. And so if God has made all these promises to me in Romans chapter 8, which is so many of our favorite chapters of the Bible, if he made those promises to me, how do I know they're any good if his promises to Israel look like they're no good? So that's the issue that Paul is addressing in Romans 9, 10, 11. Can we trust God's promises to us if it looks like his promises to Israel haven't come true? And what Paul is showing is that God is faithful. God is is not uh, to blame for this. He is still faithful and he's fulfilled his promises. And I'm going to summarize chapter 9, chapter 10 in a sentence. Chapter 9, the sentence is, all of God's elect were saved. All of those who God chose, received the promise, were followers. That's, that's the argument in Paul, of Paul in chapter 9. And in chapter 10, we read that salvation is by faith and that Israel didn't believe. So that's what you have. Can you blame God for Israel not obeying? Can we trust God in light of that? Well, chapter 9, all of the elect were saved. Chapter 10, the problem is it's by faith and Israel didn't believe. They didn't have faith. Today, we finish the argument. We see Paul is going to tell us we can absolutely trust the promises of God still. And we need to figure out Romans 11. Romans 11 is a, it's a big chapter. It's 36 verses. We're not going to spend uh, the same amount of time on every single verse. But we need to think about how should we approach Romans 11. I'm going to help you, okay? What I want you to think about as you think about Romans 11 is I want you to think about la bufadora. Oh, yeah. La bufadora. Someone translate that for me. What is in Espanol? La bufadora? What is it? Not the buffalo. No, that's just buffalo. No, that's a terrible guess. La bufadora. Anybody? Who's got it? Does it translate? I'm, I'm now nervous. I'm saying it wrong. ¿Quién habla español y puede decirlo en inglés? Por favor, bufadora. What is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Does it mean blowhole? 
I've been told blowhole. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. Blowhole. That's what we're looking for. So if si puedes visitar Mexico and in Ensenada, you would find this place called La Bufadora. I have a picture just to show it to you. So picture number one. So here's what here's what the Bufadora is, just to help you out with this. This is it's known as a marine geyser. So what happens is all the water gets sucked into this area. And there's an underground cavern that all the water gets trapped in there. And as the water pressure and the air pressure builds up, the water shoots out this little hole. Uh, let's go to the next slide. So that there's a picture here. So this is kind of the area. You see all the water goes into that area. People stand up. They see the water go up. It goes about 60 feet high up in the air. It's, it's, I think there's like three in the world. One is in Hawaii. I forget where the third one is. I think Australia or something like that. But next slide, just to see how high up it goes. So that's just kind of pictures of buildings and stuff. Bufadora, there you go. Geography lesson for the day. Congratulations. Next slide. You don't have to put that up anymore. The reason why I bring this up is because it's, it's amazing. It's stunning. People come look at it. They take their pictures with it. They try to time it right and everything. It's also, if you're not careful, potentially dangerous. Because you looked, and if, if you were to go over the barrier, it's a steep cliff there. The rocks are slippery because of the water. The tide is strong, and there are warnings. If you fall in, it's not safe. In July of last year, uh, there were several tourists who were messing around on the rocks. Thankfully, there were people there to help them because they got sucked in yards and yards out into the water. There's other rocks that they, uh, uh, by God's kindness, avoided hitting on their way out. It's dangerous. And it's an interesting thing to think about. This, this beauty, this sort of uh, natural wonder combined with, well, danger if you're not careful. There's other places like this, right? You've been to the ocean before. You've seen how beautiful it is as you're standing on the beach. And you also see the sign that says, warning, strong current. Okay, you need to be careful. You don't get pulled into a pier or something. Or some of you have been to the Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon, stunning, beautiful views. Sign that says, caution, sheer cliff. Keep watch of your children and pets. Because as beautiful it is, as it is, it's also Dangerous, splendor and danger right next to each other. That balance is going to help you understand Romans 11. Beauty and caution. As we wrap up these three chapters, as we look specifically at Romans 11, this question of how God dealt with his chosen people of the Old Testament, you're going to see beauty and you're going to see the need to be careful. If I were to give you a summary verse of this chapter... I think it's verse 22. Look, if you would, at Romans eleven twenty-two. If you're not there yet, maybe look on with the person next to you so you could see it. Romans 11, verse 22, Paul writes, Note then, or some of your translations say, Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. Kindness. We're just saying about Jesus being kind and It's because God is kind. There's no God in heaven who's not like Jesus. Kindness is something we don't always consider. It's it's not something we really appreciate if uh, if we expect kindness. But what you find in the Bible is a God who owes us nothing but wrath, owes us nothing but punishment for our sins, and yet he shows care and compassion and kindness, undeserved grace and favor towards sinners. And in this chapter, we will see the kindness of God. 
a God who's overwhelmingly and deserving of worship because of his kindness. And yet what we also see is this word severity. What does that word mean, severity? There's an intensity behind it. The the word actually has the idea of rigidness. It it, kind of means to cut off. When you think of the word severe, there's a finality to it. That's what's behind this word. There's a strength and a finality to the judgments of God, a rigidness, you could say. See, we're used to getting what we want. And we're used to be able to talking our way out of situations uh, that might end up not going well for us. Many of you are used to being threatened only to get off the hook. So the teacher tells you they are going to fail you. No makeup work allowed. And then two weeks before the end of the semester, your teacher says, okay, fine, I'll let you do some makeup work. And even though you put in no effort, you still get a C. Why? Because you're used to getting off the hook. Some of your parents over and over again say, this is the last straw. This is the last straw I'm taking away. They take away your phone or something. Only for you to get it back like 14 minutes later or something like that. Right? We're used to being threatened with consequences, but people don't see through on those consequences. And I think, as a young person, it does you no good to think that consequences will never come. To think that you'll actually be, I don't know, rejected and miss out on what you want. That's why I think it's good for some of you to interview for jobs that you are not offered. And it's good for you to get letters back from colleges you applied to that say that they're full. And it's good for some of you to root for sports because the Super Bowl doesn't have 32 teams on the podium at the end. 31 of our teams will lose. And that's good because it teaches us something about God. God in the end doesn't just go, ah, you tried, everyone get in there. No, no, there is a kindness to God, a kindness that welcomes sinners through the death of his son. A kindness that says, I will have my son take the punishment for your sin so you could be forgiven. But there is also a severity, a time when the chances run out, a rigidness, a fixed gap. You're either in Christ or not, and there's nothing else you can now do about it. That's what we see in this chapter. Kindness and severity. Reasons to praise and reasons for trepidation. And I want us to walk through those this morning as we look at this. Like the Bufadora, like the Grand Canyon, beauty and reasons to be cautious. So this morning, I want you to see in this passage six things, but we'll go quick. I want you to see three wonders. Three wonders, three things that should astonish you about God. And then I want you to heed three warnings. Three things that should make you stop and take account of your own life and your own pursuit of the Lord. That you'd listen to the warnings of God. Three wonders and three warnings this morning as we behold the kindness and the severity of God. Let's look at these together. Number one, let's wonder at God's stubborn grace. Let's wonder together at God's stubborn grace. The chapter begins like this, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Okay, here's the context. Israel is supposed to be saved by faith. They don't believe Jesus. They don't want anything to do with him. They reject him. They see his good deeds and still don't want to follow him. And the question that Paul is asking, if they were promised a Savior and they reject the Savior, is are they lost forever? Are they done? Do they have no hope of 
being saved, ethnic Israel? And Paul's answer is, by no means, no. For example, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Right? So there's obviously Israelites being saved, he says, because, well, I was an Israelite who's been saved. He then says that not all Israel is undone, but God keeps a faithful remnant. That in spite of their historical proclivity to idolatry, that over and over again they're bent towards worshiping other gods, God continues to rescue some. Look at verse 2. It says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that what scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? He says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. Now, for proof here, here's what Paul's doing. He's going to say, I want to show that God always keeps a faithful remnant. That God, despite Israel's weakness, always, on his sovereign purposes, chose some to show grace to. And the example he's going to go to is from 1 Kings. We're not going to turn there. It's the story of Elijah. He's going to choose a scene when Israel was really wicked, at a really dark time. And you say, well, how wicked were they? Let me explain how wicked they were. All of the nation is worshiping a false god named Baal. They've rejected Yahweh. They're worshiping the false gods. And Elijah, a prophet of Yahweh, says, we need to show who the real God is. So prophets of Baal, we're going to have a showdown. Some of you are familiar with the story. It's for 1 Kings 18. Let's have a contest to see whose God is real. Prophets of Baal, why don't you prepare a sacrifice? And I, the only prophet of Yahweh, uh, 1 verse 400, I'll prepare a sacrifice and we'll call down fire from heaven and see which God answers. And so the prophets of Baal, they prepare the altar. They work all day. They're pleading out to Baal. They're cutting themselves to please him all day long and nothing happens. There's just a dead ox on the altar. Nothing. It's probably not smelling very good either over some time. And Elijah's mocking them the whole time this is happening. Maybe your God's busy. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's using the bathroom. Where's your God? It says it's in the Bible for real. And, and then after all of that, Elijah douses his sacrifice with water, which makes it a little harder to catch on fire. Douses it again with water. Calls on the name of Yahweh. And instantaneously fire from heaven. Yahweh is real God. Let's kill the prophets of Baal altogether. It's an amazing scene. It's, it's undeniable proof that God is the one true God. What's Israel's response? The queen says, the prophets of Baal just lost. Let's kill Elijah. And the nation follows her lead. Like, sometimes with these children's stories, we don't get it. I mean, the equivalent would be God splitting the end zone at the halftime show, Jesus emerging, people, him speaking to everyone going, turn or burn, going down, closing it up, and the rest of the people going like, nah, I still don't know if I buy Christianity. Right? It'd be insane. It's such an obvious sign, and they don't believe which is why there in verse 3, speaking of Elijah from 1 Kings 19, says, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left. They seek my life. It's Elijah saying to God, you need to abandon them. These people need to be judged because they don't believe in you. What is God's reply? 
God's reply is stubborn grace. I know they're wicked. I know they are guilty of what you've accused them of. But verse 4, But I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There is a remnant. Why? Because God is stubbornly gracious to those he has promised to be gracious to. It's amazing. It's, it's incredible. Look at verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant. How? By grace. Chosen by grace. And if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Isn't that good news? That God remains steadfastly gracious to those to whom he's shown grace to. I wonder how many of you are thankful for the stubborn grace of God. That in your consistent rebellion, whether it was ignoring sermons, ignoring God's word, or just knowing God's word and not wanting to obey, you look back now as a believer and say, God was gracious so many times with me when I didn't deserve it. Isn't that good that God remains gracious even when we deserve no good things from him? We wonder at that and we praise at that. God is gracious, but there is also a warning here. Number two, warning. Warning, hearts may be hardened. Hearts may be hardened. Verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. They did not get what they wanted. They wanted to be right with God. They went about it the wrong way, and so they did not get it. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now, we've talked about this, this word hardened before. It's an important word to understand. Uh, just a reminder, this isn't forced unbelief. This isn't somebody saying, I really want to believe, but God just won't let me. That's not what the word hearted means. I would call it strengthened unbelief. It, it's God going to those who already don't believe and punishing them by going, yeah, keep going. This is totally the right way to go. Go for it. This is God removing the restraint. So let me, let me tell you how the Bible talks about the way God shows his wrath to sinners today. This is Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, it says he gives them over to their sins. So if you are not a Christian in your rebellion against God, what the Bible says is that you are in a sort of spiritual tug of war. Right? You are pulling against God. He's trying to pull you that way. You're trying to pull back against him, saying, I will not listen to you. I will not obey you. I remain God of the universe. The problem is your tug of war, what you don't realize is that your feet are right up against an abyss. And God shows punishment sometimes by... Well, just letting go of the rope. And as you pull, you know what happens in a tug of war when the other side lets go? You, you fall back further into your unbelief. Friends, that, what, that is what God has done with unbelieving Israel. It, it, he quotes these verses here. These are from Isaiah 29 and Psalm 69, verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Again, this is not 
those who are saying, I really want to obey God. He's just not letting me. This is those who are saying, I don't want to listen to God. I'm the God of my universe. I love football and friends and fame and fortune more than anything else he can offer me. And God says, go for it. All yours. Drink it up. Get as much as you want. God punishes unbelief by strengthening the resolve of those who have unbelief. What a warning this is. What a warning this is to us. What a warning this is to you. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me explain what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who recognizes their sinfulness, that owns, I am desperately lost, and then lovingly clings to Jesus as Savior, saying, I need you, Christ. I adore you, Christ. I need you to rescue me. I'm clinging to you with my whole life. My actions, my thoughts, uh, the way I handle my phone, everything becomes about Christ because I'm clinging to him as Savior. That's what a Christian is. It's not just knowledge, it's submission, joyful submission. There are some, even in this room, who will then say things like, I know what that looks like to follow Jesus, but I'll do that later. I'll get around to it. Friend, there, there's no guarantee of that. If that's you this morning, you're like, look, let me just kind of like do the high school thing. I want to do the boyfriend or girlfriend thing. And then I want to do the college thing and the party thing. And then I'll clean up and go back to Jesus. I know a ton of people have done that. Well, that, that's God's grace, but that's not guaranteed to you. It, it's not. You have no control if you're even going to live another week. But that's also not how sin works. You're not smarter than the sin that you're enslaved to. And that's not what you can guarantee will happen. How do you not know that God will not punish you now by, by saying, keep going in that, and you're more resolved than that? Student, don't be foolish. The heart can be hardened. That softness now, that part of you now that goes, I know I should turn to Christ, but it will cost me. Oh, that tension will not always be there. And if you choose not to follow Jesus, the severity of God looks like hardening. Hearts can be hardened. Unbelief punished with stronger unbelief. So be warned. And yet, as this passage continues, there is more good news, things to wonder at. Number three, let's, let's wonder at evangelistic envy. Let's wonder at evangelistic envy, which is a phrase uh, that I will trademark. I've never heard it before, but you'll see it's, it, it's a weird sentence, but I think it's in the text. I think it makes sense because there is patience in God and he's committed to his promises with his people. So he's saying Israel is hardened, but because he's made a commitment to Israel, to, to ethnic Israelites, he fulfills his promises. Let's look at verse 11 here. He says, so I ask, did they, Israelites, stumble in order that they might fall, right? Did, he, did they stumble so that they cannot be redeemed? And again, he says, by no means. And what you see is God has this plan. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So let's look at this here. How many of you have no Israelite Jewish blood in you whatsoever? None. You're not Israelite, not Jewish at all. Raise your hand. It's not a trick question. I'm just checking. Okay, you know what you are? Gentiles. That's you. Congratulations. You know why the gospel came to you. 
is a response to Israel's unbelief. Over and over again in the book of Acts, you see uh, the gospel goes to the Jews. They reject it, and Paul and Silas and, and the other leaders go, great, we're going to go preach to the Gentiles now. So congratulations, you're part of that. You, you non-Jews, you, you did very good. So we'll talk about Jewish uh, Jews another time. But what else here? So what was the plan in that? Not only to give grace to the nations, which is an Old Testament idea as well, but why? So as to make Israel jealous. So here's what Paul's going to say. I, God's plan is to still reach ethnic Jews who've rejected him, who received the promises in the Old Testament. But he's going to do it through envy. If you don't believe me, let's read the Bible. Verse 12, he says, Now if their trespass of the Jews means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? In other words, if their disobedience brought so many great things for Gentiles, non-Jews, then isn't their obedience going to be great things? And how does that obedience come about? He says, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. That's you guys right there. There you go. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles... I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. That God's plan to continue to rescue ethnic Jews who are, according to Paul's word, genuinely zealous for God but misinformed and ignorant. That they would see these Gentiles who they would have thought as dogs coming into the kingdom of God, becoming part of the kingdom of God, and they would go, wait a second. Those people are totally getting the blessing I was supposed to get. I had dibs on that, and now we're missing out. They're the ones who are being included in the people of God. Something is is off here. And that in doing that, as they see that you're reading the scriptures, and then yet you're reading this other part of the scriptures that have been fulfilled, or that fulfill the Old Testament that they would come to know Christ. That they realize, like, wait, these people have the Messiah. Wait a second, these people have a better sacrificial system. They have a better Passover. They have things that are like what I have, but better. And in doing that, they might come to know Christ. That was God's plan. That was his scheme to, to rescue some of them. And, and their rescue would be legitimate. Again, this is continuously grace offered to them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? God continues to offer grace to this day, just like he continues to offer grace who uh, do not all believe in him. If the dough offered at first roots is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. We'll talk about the branches in a second. Here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about that God's promises don't fail. He promised good things to those who sinned against him, and yet he still fulfills his promises. I try to think about this chapter, how you would read it if you'd never gone to church before. So imagine someone who has no familiarity with church, maybe never heard the word Gentile before. I don't know if they talk about Gentiles in public school or anything like that. I know you guys do in homeschool. But in public school, like, you know, like, And you're like, what am I supposed to do with this? This is such a weird religious teaching. What do I do? Here's what I want you to take away from this, if if that's you. What you find here is a God who does not break off his promises, who's trustworthy, whose promises are not affected by our 
actions. Look, plans change. Leaders lie to us. Boyfriends change their mind or move away. Either way, dad rejoices. Um, but, But here is a God that you can trust in whose promises are not half-hearted, who are not hanging by a thread, but always fulfills that which, he's, that which he's promised. That is good news. This is a God that you can trust. Earlier I mentioned um, it's, being a Christian is lovingly submitting to Jesus. Maybe you're new, and what I would just encourage you to do is just read the Gospels. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just ask, okay, Jesus claims to be God. This is the God of the universe. Is this a God I can trust? Because what you'll find as you read those is what you find here in Romans 11, that he is. He's totally trustworthy. Someone you could and even should entrust your entire life to. That's, that is the, the wonder of evangel, evangelistic envy. Even in this weird way, a way that's benefited us who are Gentiles, God offers grace to those he's promised grace to. This also leads us to, again, then another warning. Warning. Number four this morning. Warning. A warning for us Gentiles. Stay low or fall. Stay low or fall. We need to get horticultural here and agricultural here. We got some language we need to think about. Verse 17 says, But if some of the branches... Now again, he's using this illustration that there's the good things in the roots of Israel, and therefore the fruit that comes out of it, verse 16, is going to be good. Verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Okay, what does this mean? What is happening here? Olive trees, I like olive garden. How do I think about this? Grafting, I don't like graft paper. No, that's not right. What, what do I do here? So some of you know what grafting is. Some of you are like, what is grafting? And I'm glad you asked. This has to do with plant life. So a homeschooler's got to have done this. Who has done grafting before? One of, yes, thank you. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, that's good. Okay, yeah, I knew there'd be a few. Okay, for those of you who don't know what grafting is, allow me to illustrate. I have a picture for you right here. There we go. Ah, so I'm not going to do all the terminology here, but what you have is if you cut from the stem or the root stock of, uh, of one thing. See, grafting is a technique that joins two plants into one, combining characteristics of both plants. I read that right now. Um, there it is. You go to the stem, and what you do is as you're preparing this, you're going to cut the vascular tissue from one. You're going to cut the vascular tissue from the other. You're going to stick them together, and it'll actually grow. It's like a foreign branch, even from like a different plant, can grow when connected to another plant. Let's go another picture here. So sometimes it looks like this. You take one stick, you put it in the other stick. That's, my, that's, that's layman's terms right there. Uh, and it, it allows it to grow, etc. And allows that branch to thrive, even though it was not originally connected to the first plant. That, that's all I've got when it comes to grafting. I, I don't have anything else to say about that. I'm not a farmer. I do want to know, that, although it has nothing to do with my sermon, that I did look up the price of bonsai trees this week because I thought that would be cool. They're super expensive, and the scissors for them cost anywhere from twenty-five dollars to $35,000. So you've got to be careful with those. So we can get that off now. We're, we're done with that. So grafting. What, what is Paul talking about here? What he's saying is that you Gentiles, even though you were like of a different plant, 
And there are these promises to Israel. You have been grafted in. You've been connected as if you were part of the plant. And you enjoy being part of the people of God. Though Gentiles still distinct from Israel throughout this whole thing, God has a plan for future ethnic Israel. We, we see here that we've been brought in. Like Moses is not our forefather if you're a Gentile. Abraham is not our forefather if you're a Gentile. And yet we get the blessings of the promised Messiah. We get the blessings of the scriptures. We get the blessings of knowing God like these men knew God. It's like we get all the benefits. It's, it's um, like if somebody for, if you were to foreclose on your house and your parents uh, weren't able to afford it anymore, you had to move out, what would happen is someone else would move in and enjoy the blessings of all the upgraded countertops and everything that you guys put in it. They enjoy it. Okay, that's what it's like for, the Isra- for Gentiles. They're enjoying the blessings of being part of the people of God. And so if you're a Gentile, you're like, man, I, I'm enjoying this. This is awesome. So what's Paul's advice to me? His advice to us in verse, is verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. His advice is this. Stay humble. Do not think that now your hot stuff and those Israelites blew it. That's his advice to them. Now, it's a different time because we're not interacting with a ton of ethnic Israelites, full people that are fully Jewish. But look at verse 19. He says, Then you will say, Well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. In other words, you might think, Sweet, now I'm in a privileged position. Look at how great I am. Paul goes, That's great. You know who else used to think they were in a privileged position? Ethnic Israel. And they fell away. So you remain humble. Don't be arrogant. Don't think just because now you've got things figured out that you are somehow safe, but remain steadfast in belief. Do not fall away. Just because you're in a privileged position now doesn't mean it will always stay like that if you don't keep clinging to Christ. What, should we, what do we take from this? Now, I think two lessons I have. One of them is that pointing out the defects in others. Let me hear this. Let me, I want you to hear this. Pointing out the defects in others is not a sign of faith. Let me say that again. It's very easy for these Gentiles to look at these Israelites and say they're wrong. But knowing that others are wrong doesn't make you right. Now I think about this group and think about the world we live in. Think about how over the weekend, the fastest uh, swimmer in a women's event was a man. And we would look at that and think that is wrong. Gender is not something you get to decide. We, we look at the abortion issue. We look at so many cultural issues. We can identify what's wrong. But just because you can identify they're wrong doesn't make you right. Look, I know we go to a healthy church. I love our church. I love the way we treat the word. I love the way we treat discipleship. I love the way that we call people to real faith. I know some of you have come here because you think like, well, those other churches I used to go to weren't good churches. Some of you have been here going like, yeah, there's so many bad churches that do A, B, and C. 
But just because you know they do it wrong doesn't mean that you're in the right. Knowing that someone else isn't following Jesus doesn't necessarily mean you are following Jesus. That's a warning for us to look at ourselves and to make sure we still have faith. And what does faith look like? Well, I think the other thing this passage warns us against is presumptive faith or passive faith. To think, well, we're in the clear. Uh, Paul here says, God did not spare natural branches, neither will he spare you. Look, at ver- uh, look up on the screen here. I've got Philippians 3.14. This is what faith looks like. Paul says, I press on, I strive toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God, God in Christ Jesus. Student, are you striving? Just because you notice other people are on the sidelines doesn't mean you're running the race. Do you understand that? Are you really striving for and following Christ? Are you clinging to him by faith, trusting him? Because as verse 22 says, note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Friends, we do not get saved and rest. We get saved and run and follow, continue to trust Christ, trust the God who has been more kind to us than we deserve. Consider that. Let's keep moving. Number five, there's another warning. Another warning. Warning, know the times. Know the times. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Okay, here we go. This is, this is Paul's summary of his salvation history. You ready? Up to, up to this point when he wrote this. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, this is interesting. Israel, ethnic Israelites, hardened in their unbelief, encouraged in their unbelief until what? Until every single appointed Gentile is saved. Man, that is good news, right? Every single person that Jesus has died for will be rescued. His blood not wasted in any way whatsoever. But there is an appointed time. There is an appointed number. Until the fullness, the completion, the totality of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, at that time, all Israel will be saved. Do you realize God still has a plan to save massive amounts of ethnic Jews, Israelites. Is in this way all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Quoting from Isaiah 59. God one day is going to show grace to myriads and myriads of of Israelites, unsaved Israelites. Uh, Revelation itself speaks of in the end times, the final times, 144,000 witnesses that share the gospel. As they share the gospel, others are getting saved. Some Jew, some Gentile. But what I want you to see from this is God's eternal plans and where we are on the calendar. Do you realize there comes a point when the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled and the end times kick off. And if you read Revelation, what you find is most of the people in the end times still don't obey. You, let's go back to my, my cheesy halftime show illustration earlier. 
and you think, I don't know, Josh, I think if Jesus did that, people would turn and repent and trust in him. Do you realize that in Revelation, you basically see the plagues of Egypt 2.0? You see the water drying up, you see blood covering the earth, you see death, you see famine, you see disaster. The sun starts launching flares, basically, that kill people. And it says that they still do not repent. They want to avoid the judgment of God. They want to do that by having the rocks fall on them so they could die and no longer go through the tribulation. But those do not cause people to repent, friends. Again, I think know the times. Understand that Christ is coming back. He could come back soon. You are not promised the schedule you've put together, no matter how fastidious some of you are with your calendar. There's no guarantee that it happens. And so praise God, there is a time where he's going to save all those he's promised to save. And these promises he's made to Israel will shine forth and all will worship him for the good God he is. But there's a time where the primary converts don't look like they're going to be Gentiles. So turn to Christ quickly while he still in his grace gives you time. Number six. Here we go. Thank you for working with me. Number six. Wonder at the inclusive gospel. Yikes. And some of you are like, inclusive? That's such a bad word today. I don't like that word. But where are we getting it from? Well, Paul's going to summarize. He's going to say, as regards, the gospel, as regards the gospel, they, the Jews right now, are enemies for your sake. Because they, they are against the Christians. You could read that in Acts. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. God made promises to them. He'll deliver on those promises. Verse 29, for the gifts... And the calling of God are irrevocable. And that's a verse we could meditate on. Verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too they, have, they now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. So here's what Paul's saying. You were disobedient. Gentiles, but by the disobedience of Israelites, you were shown mercy. And through their disobedience and through your obedience, they can be shown mercy. It's a little complicated. The math there is a little funky, but so they, verse 2, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. And you're saying, Josh, could you summarize that a little tighter for me? Yes, verse 32. Paul can do it for you. Paul says this, For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now look what God has done here. You've got to see this. This is God's wisdom. God's kind. This is the kind of God we, uh, we should worship. This is the kind of God that owes us nothing, yet look what he has done. He has, this is amazing, verse 32, he has consigned all all to disobedience. For God has consigned all disobedience. The word there for consigned uh, is like imprisoned. Okay, so here's what God has done. God, to both Jew and Gentile, religious and irreligious person, has shown them through his word that they are disobedient. He's imprisoned them. His case is so strong, there's no way someone can say, actually, I'm the obedient one. You are disobedient in your religiosity. You are disobedient in your 
anti-God lifestyle, no matter what background you're coming from, God over has shown you are disobedient to God. He's trapped you in that. Why? Why? So that he can have mercy on all. This is not universalism. This is not saying God made everyone guilty and therefore God saved every single soul. But what this is, is inclusion. This is possibility. This is every single one of you has been shown by God that you are guilty so that every single one of you can find mercy in Christ. God doesn't... Let me say, God is not obligated to show us our sin. He's not. Like, you should, like, grace is you getting to hear again how you're lost without a Savior. But God in His mercy wants to show you that you need to be rescued. So that why? Well, so that you could see that you could receive mercy, forgiveness through Christ. See, God has demonstrated our unlawfulness so that he might point all of us to the one who was perfectly obedient, who fulfilled the entire law, who then died in our place through whom we could receive forgiveness and we can actually receive mercy. Oh, there is no sinner who would come to the senses of how guilty and sinful they are and then not be allowed to receive mercy. Oh, he, received, he gives mercy to everyone who trusts in him. Everyone who would repent, own their sinfulness, turn from their sin, and cry out to the Lord. That's who God is. Which is why I did sneak a seventh point in on there, you. Because I, I wanted to. Number seven is this wonder at God. Wonder at God. That's what Paul ends. Paul has said, God is the God who has shown that everyone is guilty so that he is the God that could save anyone. That's who God is. That's who he is in his mercy. Verse 33, then Paul says, look at this. He has made promises to some people. He has then saved other people so that some of his original people might come to be saved. He is giving grace to all after imprisoning all in sin so he might show mercy and all. And he responds by saying, verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable, incomprehensible his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who, has, or, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who can imagine such wisdom? Who can imagine his thoughts? Who can imagine such kindness? That's where Paul ends. Not with, wow, Christianity is a cool system. Wow, the Bible is a cool book. But what an amazing God. And Paul ends by saying, for from him and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. There is no God like this God. All things come from him. All things are sustained by him. All things point to his glory. All glory be to him. Salvation itself is what? From God. He originated this plan to save sinners. It's through God. You're only saved by him. It brings you back to God. No boasting for us all glory to him. That is the God that we serve. That is the God that saves sinners today. And the only right response then is to worship and to delight and to praise and give glory and ascribe greatness to this 
God. We read Romans 9, 10, and 11. My, my fear, as I even look out in this room, is that would you worship God in light of His grace? We, we sing a song here at our church. It's a lot of churches sing it. In fact, I, I bet some of you could guess it. If I were to say, what's the most popular Christian song in the church, out of the church, one that, that pretty much all people know at least heard once, your guess would be what? Anyone have a guess? Amazing Grace. There is a difference between knowing grace is amazing and feeling grace is amazing. Now, I'm not saying you chase after feelings. What I'm saying is, if you know your sin, and you know that God owes you nothing, and you realize he's made a way for mercy in Christ, how are we not amazed by this God that he would take all our sin and put it on his son so that we could be forgiven? This is a God we should worship because from him and through him and to him are all things. Because of his grace, we should give him the glory forever. Amen. Let me pray. Are we done? Father, we thank you for your kindness towards us. That you have not treated us like enemies, but those of us in Christ, you've treated us like sons children as friends thank you for exposing our sin and causing us to believe in you and being one who gives mercy to everyone who comes to you so good of you Lord Lord I pray that we would not take your severity for granted God I pray for students in this room who do not know you, that they would not reject the grace you offer them this morning. Lord, we ask that you would show mercy on them and not harden their hearts. Ask that they would repent. Lord, help us to remember that we deserve no good thing from you and help us to delight that you've saved us anyway, that you've shown mercy to this sinner and that we have forgiveness because of your love for us. Help us to worship you now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand and think and be thankful for the love that Christ has saved us.